0: Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your man, Montel Jordan. And this is how we do it. And right now you're listening to Legal Face Off on WGN Radio. That's right. You're locked onto the high energy legal podcast with lawyers, Rich Lenkov and Tina Martini. And they're going to be trading jabs on the breaking news and the hottest issues, sports, entertainment, politics. Nothing is off limits. Keep listening, because this is how we do it.
1: Welcome to another edition of Legal Faceoff. I am Rich Lenkov. I am one of the co-hosts. Tina Martini is uh, conflicted today, unfortunately, so it's just me. Uh, we've also got Joe Brain, who will maybe be joining us shortly. He is uh, having some traffic issues here in the great city of Chicago, so we might have another fill-in, Joe, Joey Christopoulos, join us. But all that being said, we're really uh, grateful to have Dan Novak, First Amendment lawyer and host of the brand new podcast, Town, joining us today to talk about the Johnny Depp versus Amber Heard trial. Dan, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: So uh, you and I are both watching Twitter. We don't see the jury back yet. They've been deliberating uh, all day today, presumably after a long holiday weekend. Uh, do you think that a – this is standard kind of cliché question to all legal analysts when you've got a jury, a high-profile jury uh, – a long deliberation or short deliberation? What are we looking at and – who does that favor? This is a little harder case because there's, you know, we got counter suits. Both are suing each other for defamation. Um, so I don't think it's as clear as you would normally answer. Well, let's get your take on, uh, on the deliberation time.
2: I'm going to go out on a limb and predict long because there's just so much evidence in this case flowing in both directions. And there's a number of incidents that the jury will want to look at carefully and weigh the evidence for or rebutting whether or not those incidents took place the only reason to kind of have a short turnaround would be if the jury just concludes right off the bat that one side is just completely full of it and they don't they're not they don't care to examine their claims and i i think that that's that would be fairly extreme given how much evidence we're looking at six weeks of evidence here
1: yeah um our our next one of our guests later will be talking about this as well, Dina Dahl. She I you know made a really interesting point that I was reading over the weekend. You know, she gave the jury way more credit than I think a lot of people do. And she said the jury in these kind of high-profile cases really do listen to the evidence. They really try to put aside the external noise. In this case, that's really hard. There's so much external noise. It's probably, you know, the most covered trial in American history. And you might think oj was first you know oj it was way before the twitter era the tiktok era there are so many tiktok videos already about this that i think you could argue this is the most covered uh trial in american history so given all that do you think the jury is really going to dive into the specifics of defamation and the cause of action for defamation or are they just listening to all the extraneous stuff um and sort of thinking well these are two hollywood actors and who do i like more right hopefully that's not it but What's the reality of what's going on in that box? It's
2: really hard because, you know, I take it, I take the jury at face value and through to get through to this point, they had to, in say, I don't have a bias here that conflicts in one direction or the other. I'm not a massive Pirates of the Caribbean fan such that I could never see Johnny Depp, you know, uh, be spoken of in this way. I'm not a massive um, Aquaman fan, you know, in, in favor of Amber Heard. That being said, we're all aware that they're actors. And so you know that when they're on the stand that they're acting, they could be telling the truth and acting. A lot of acting is finding truth, but it could also be lies. And so I just don't know how you shake that, the that sort of meta layer that is just so much more apparent because these are the types of people that are at the tops of their profession. And if they want you to believe something's not true, I would think that they have a better ability to do that than I could. Um, I, I mean, sure, as lawyers, we're trying to, we, we try to, these zealous advocates for our clients, but I'm not, I don't never found myself to be a terribly convincing liar, so I think that that's a challenge for them. And you want they want to take it seriously, there's no evidence that they've been falling asleep or anything like that. There's been some slow parts, like any trial, it's hard to maintain that stamina for six weeks, but it's been colorful at parts. We've seen certainly moments where there was levity and laughter, there's some cringe moments too, there's some dark moments, so I think they've kind of it would be hard not to be invested in this in a way that's compared to a, you know, very dry technical case about, you know, trade secrets or something.
1: Yeah, Dad, I know you've done some deep dives online to a lot of the intricacies of the trial, which I find fascinating. And I was glued. I just got to say, I already missed this trial because I was glued As a legal analyst, as a junkie of this kind of stuff, as a law geek, I was glued to every minute. And I'm really glad to see someone else like you dive into a lot of the small details like, you know, the eye contact that Amber Heard was making with the jury was really distracting in one way. In another way, I thought she was really well coached, you know, and for our listeners, you know, during Amber Heard's uh, testimony, she would look directly at the jury who was seated to her right. And at one point, you know, Camille Vasquez, who was Johnny Depp, Johnny Depp's lead lawyer, told her, like, please do not uh, testify directly to the jury if there's no question pending. What did you make of that and her overall demeanor? Um, And coupled with that, what did you what do you think of the overwhelming derision that Amber Heard seems to be facing uh, online, given, again, what I thought was a pretty compelling piece of testimony, aside from some obvious lack of credibility, which I think is to be expected in any case that goes on this long. That's the longest compound question in history, but give it a shot.
2: (laughs) I was fascinated by their respective approaches here, because on the one hand, this is Johnny Depp's case, although that's not fully true because she countersued. And we have this scenario where a jury's asked to answer two questions that are sort of right up to the line of each other, but don't fully overlap. Is it more likely than not that that Amber Heard lied when she accused. If you credit that that op-ed is accusing Johnny Depp of domestic violence, which I think is a reasonable reading of it, did she lie when she did that, or more, excuse me, more likely than not lie? But she is countersuing, and did Depp's lawyer more likely than not lie when he said that this whole thing was a hoax? So in theory, they could actually come to like a split decision where the jury just doesn't think either side is more credible than the other. And Johnny Depp loses his claim because it's his burden to prove the lie on her side. And she loses her claim because it's her burden to prove his lie. I don't see that happening. But I, I keep thinking about that because they both have um, equivalent burdens for their version of events. I think that both parties have a completely plausible story to tell. So that's what makes this so hard is that if Amber Heard has telling the truth the things that she has been sort of impeached for in terms of character or, or in terms of undermining certain timelines or how the evidence sort of falls, you could overlook it if you just fundamentally believe her. On the other hand, if she did make this up, everything that Johnny Depp has done is completely uh, you know, predictable. This is what you would do if you were trying to clear your name. So I have tried to sort of uh, practice some humility. And I don't believe I can tell who, who, who what really happened. So I'm trying to look at the evidence the way that a jury's supposed to and be open to both possibilities. That being said, they have very different styles. And so Johnny Depp at, at times was kind of somber, but also was funny. Uh, like had more than one sort of applause line. There's those kind of highlight packages with the uh, hearsay objections that he sort of was anticipating at various moments. Whereas Heard was... I mean, I thought she was extremely combative, but if you were being put through a situation where not only were you abused, but then you have this legal process, which if it's if her allegations are true, is another form of abuse against her, why wouldn't you act angry um, at that line of questioning? Uh, Camille Vasquez, Johnny Depp's attorney, was extremely aggressive. And I have to think that the fact that she, as the woman on that legal team, drew her as a witness... I, that has to be intentional to me, because I can't imagine Ben Chu doing those same questions. It would just look, I just think the optics would be really challenging. So um, that, that, but those colloquies were, they got progressively nastier. And I, and, and, that, and that doesn't mean on her Zen exclusively, I thought that Vasquez gave as good as she got, and it started to just look like posturing on both sides. So I thought that it was logical if you were trying to, win this case is heard, that you would be pissed off. That's what you want to show the jury is that I'm going through a second form of, of abuse here. But if the jury is looking at this in a very dry way and wants to just evaluate the photographs and the testimony of the experts, then the emotion is not helpful to me.
1: Yeah. I mean, this stuff is so fascinating. I wish we had, I mean, we could literally talk with this for hours cause uh, it's so, it's so interesting, but we've got a, we've got a break here. One, one last question. We'll just ask you the impossible one word answer on two questions. Number one, what day do we see a verdict? And number two, who wins? And again, we know that the one loss is kind of a fungible uh, answer here, but we're going to put you on the spot.
2: Okay. Date of verdict. I'm going to say Friday, I would give them three days and change from now to, to get through it uh, because I think this is strong. Let's not get in through the come out through the weekend and have to do this again. They already had the long weekend, which must be so disruptive to their deliberation. But I think that's optimistic. And then uh, who wins? I watched a lot of this case. I have found that I, I, I found on a strategic level, I found myself agreeing more with some of the choices that Depp's team made. And I think if I had to bet, but I'm only saying 51%, I think he has a 51% chance of winning. But I do believe this is truly a toss-up.
1: Dan Novak, check out his podcast, Slandertown, wherever you consume podcasts. Dan, thank you so much for joining us on Legal Faceoff.
2: Anytime. Thank you.
1: back to Legal Face-Off. We've got uh, with us today a uh, University of Dayton dean and professor of law at the School of Law at the University of Dayton, Andrew Strauss. Dean, welcome to Legal Face-Off. Thanks very much, Rich. Good to be here. So on uh, a couple of weeks ago, the American Bar Association voted to seek public comment on a proposal eliminating the mandatory testing requirement for law school admissions throwing the fate of the infamous, some would say, LSAT exam, I remember it well when I took it, into question. What are your feelings about whether LSAT should continue to be the standard by which law schools judge, or at least partially judge, how they admit students?
3: Well, I would say, Rich, that the LSAT has certain advantages, but I don't think that it should be mandated that every law school has to use either the LSAT or the, the current standard is they have to use either the LSAT or the GRE or the burden is on them to find another test that, that they would use. And I think opening it up to a lot more uh, diversity of possibilities uh, really makes sense. There's about 200 law schools in the United States and they're tremendous laboratories for experimentation. I think the ABA really does best when it uh, tries to mandate results that every law school uh, creates, uh, brings in uh, diverse classes of professionals who it trains to be analytical thinkers and uh, competent and ethical lawyers rather than getting into the weeds on telling us exactly how to do that. So I think there's some real advantages to leaving it open to law schools to decide and figure out the best way to achieve those goals.
1: Dean, why do you think the LSAT uh, does not lend itself to that diversity that is so valuable valuable to you and and your your peers in evaluating incoming students?
3: Well, I'm not saying it, it, I didn't say that it, doesn't lend itself to that diversity, but just that law schools should be able to decide for themselves what the best way of achieving those goals are. I do think there's some question about um, the uh, LSAT in this regard, um, as as you know, Rich, uh, the the movement in undergraduate education uh, since the pandemic has been to go test optional, or in some cases, even test blind. And so this is sort of an extension of what's been going on in the undergraduate space. And there, there has been a lot of discussion that uh, tests, um, the uh, college entrance tests, uh, are detrimental to diversity. Um, the discussion in, among law schools has been uh, much more nuanced and complex around this, I would say. Uh, the LSAT actually, when it was originally introduced, was introduced uh, with the idea that there was discrimination at that time. This is in the immediate uh, post-World War II period against Catholic and Jews. And that this would create a standard uh, that would be objective and could actually help increase diversity. Uh, More recently, um, diversity admissions professionals uh, in 2018, there was a similar proposal to do away with a mandatory uh, testing requirement. And it was actually diversity admissions professionals that rallied in support of the LSAT at that time. And the Law School Admissions Council, which um, runs the LSAT, has argued that it actually increases diversity. I think it's a complicated question. Uh, there's there's it is true that oftentimes students of color and for that matter, uh, many times uh, majority students uh, who come from poor backgrounds um, don't have the preparation and uh, don't do as well on the LSAT. They they can't afford tutoring. and Sometimes their educational backgrounds haven't given them the same preparation. Um, but a, law schools have been able to be somewhat holistic in the way they've used the LSAT and haven't had to just rely on the LSAT. This could, I would just sort of conclude this by saying in the wake of, of the uh, impending uh, Supreme Court cases, uh uh, the, the Harvard and North Carolina cases, which are going, which are challenging uh, universities' ability to use uh, race as a factor in admissions, uh, the LSAT could end up really straightjacketing law schools that they have to only take people with the same level of LSAT scores. So it could be more problematic from a diversity perspective going forward.
1: Dean, the last question we have uh, time for on this really interesting issue is. We've covered the story before that more than ever students both at an undergraduate level and in law school are leaving uh, their educational careers with huge amounts of debt uh, right I mean you could be leaving law school alone with a hundred and fifty or two hundred thousand dollars in debt that we as we know is almost impossible to really pay off in your lifetime. We've seen on the political front lots of calls to wipe out college debt. Um, I don't think you could talk about this issue of uh, doing away with or at least decreasing, the value of the LSAT exam without talking about that piece as well. So do you see, do you see um, uh, minimizing the value of the LSAT as a benefit or as an impediment to those who are considering whether to spend that kind of money on law school? On the one hand, you would think that, well, if you really are serious about taking on that amount of debt, you should at least create that LSAT uh, prep and, and, and test fee as a bit of a barrier to those who would otherwise just, you know, take on that, that debt without considering it? That's a really long question, but I think I know, I think you know where I'm going with that. Sure, Rich.
3: And again, I would revert back to uh, really my first answer that we do want, I think, in, in law schools, students that are very serious about wanting to, to become lawyers, uh, to, to practice law. Law school is hard. I mean, we hear that all the time from our students. Um, I'm sure you remember the experience yourself. And people have to have the desire uh, to to do it and to stick with it. I don't think, though, the only the only way of sort of testing that desire, if you will, is for students to have to take the the LSAT. I think, again, that we're going to benefit from law schools being more able to rely on a variety of factors to determine the, uh, the, the commitment of students uh, to law school, including interviews, including looking at uh, their undergraduate records, including perhaps taking pre-law courses, boot camps, all sorts of things that they can do. And again, law schools can continue under the proposal to, to use the LSAT.
1: So I don't see that as a, as a real problem going forward. University of Dayton School of Law, Dean Andrew Strauss, thanks so much for joining us on Legal Faceoff today and good luck to the Flyers this this upcoming athletic season.
3: Thanks very much, Rich. We all know the legal world is complex and high pressure. There's no room for error. That's why judges and attorneys across Chicagoland have trusted the expert court reporters at McCorkle Litigation Services since 1948. McCorkle Litigation Services has accurately recorded every word from thousands of legal proceedings. McCorkle Litigation Services provides the legal community with peace of mind, transcribing testimony, and depositions that can be used reliably by jurors, judges, and attorneys. For all of your legal support needs, contact McCorkle Litigation Services online at McCorkleLitigation.com.
1: Moving on with Legal Faceoff, we're also privileged to have someone who is very much in demand right now. In fact, He's joining us uh, right off a movie set with a uh, a list director Uh, Scott Reitz is with International Tactical Training Seminars. He's a thirty year veteran of the L.A. Police Department. He is an he was an adjunct professor. I'm sorry, he was an adjunct professor for the U.S. Department of Energy's SRT three program. His podcast is called With Deadly Force, and his most recent book is The Art of Modern Gunfighting. Scott, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you very much for having me, Rich.
1: Obviously, we're following this story in Uvalde, and it's been about a week since this tragic shooting. Um, You are one of the nation's foremost experts in active shooting training. What went wrong with the police response here in Texas?
0: Well, uh, a lot. Um, The the list is going to be endless uh, once once the FBI comes out or anybody comes out with a detailed investigation. But there were a lot of mistakes, missteps that were made. Uh, The timeline is absolutely egregious on uh, when the officers not only responded initially, uh, failing to engage with the suspect, but, uh, you know, getting in there right away. Um, You know, I think it was five to six uh, 911 calls were made when officers were on scene from the young children that were inside uh, asking the police to come in and help them. And uh, to be quite honest, it it somewhat infuriates me uh, that, somebody didn't just take over and the individual who was in charge who made that decision from what I have seen so far uh, his experience is extremely limited in anything tactical. I'm, I'm sorry. That's just the way it is.
1: So we know from what we hear, at least preliminarily is that part of the decision was made because he thought that the shooter was locked in the classroom and was alone it seems strange that he would think that when the police were in the hallway, at least what, at least a dozen or so were in the hallway and getting these 911 calls and presumably hearing what's going on. It's a relatively small school. How do you think there could be that much confusion? Understanding, of course, that, you know, it's easy to sit here and say what should have been done in the fog of what's happening on the ground. That's got to be incredibly stressful. But to your point, you know, you're trained for this. So it seems strange that that kind of mistake would be made, confusing an active shooter who had been shooting within minutes of entering the classroom
0: with someone who was trapped, you know, trapped in. Well, you have, uh, you know, obviously numerous shots fired. You have parents outside, parents screaming. Right. You have children inside. You have all those phone calls coming in. That's not a hustle situation. That's an active shooter. Uh Irrespective of the fact that the suspect hadn't fired any shots, maybe for several minutes, I don't know what the timeline is or if they could hear anything uh, in terms of uh, auditorially. But, uh, you know, if the suspect has a weapons malfunction or he's reloading or whatever, you still have to get in there. You have to get in there right away. There are a number of things they could have done um, if you're on the scene. Uh, They have a 28-man department. They have nine people on their SWAT team. That was as of two years ago. I saw a photo of it. Uh, you know, it's okay, but not all SWAT teams are the same. Not all police departments are the same. And uh, I, I, there is no logical explanation why anybody, a commander or anybody on scene, incident commander, would not treat this as an active shooter in progress. You have, it's just, uh, there are no words at this point. I'm sorry.
1: Scott, we know from some of the accounts that are coming out that there is definitely some communication issues on the ground, right? And eventually the US Border Patrol, which is obviously a federal agency, took over and decided to breach. In these kind of situations, and you've been a veteran of so many of them, what is it like on the ground? It's gotta be, of course, you know, difficult to maintain a chain of command. It's gotta be difficult communicating, but that's so important in these situations more than ever, to have a clear chain of command and to know who's in charge. It seems like on the ground there wasn't that
0: clear direction. And that led to, at least partially, what we're seeing now. Well, we have taught many, many active shooter classes going well past the last 20 years. Uh, We just finished a class uh, in Minnesota two and a half weeks ago, came back out here. Uh, One of the things that I tell the officers is I want you to remember this. If you were watching a live feed and your children are in that, you know, go to Virginia Tech, or, or, and certainly this one's going to be uh, their paradigm model of what not to do, but if you're watching a live feed, I'm standing outside, I'm armed, even if all I have is a handgun and standard body armor, which all police officers wear now, uh, in uniform, and you have kids inside, your children are inside that classroom. Do you want me to stand and wait for backup or do you want me to go in right away? And universally, every single officer says, no, I'm going in. And I told the group that I just trained, I said, you may be going in by yourself. You may have to hazard yourself. And it is totally predicated on the seriousness and devotion that you take your oath, that you swear, you know, when you put on that badge that, you know, you're out there to help people that can't help themselves, especially in a situation where you have young children such as this. Anybody who is on the first person on scene, that becomes the incident commander. I could care less about rank. Rank means absolutely nothing. It does not denote expertise in any way, shape or form, knowledge or background, you know, training. It means nothing. It's the first person that is on scene. That's the incident commander. If I had been there, uh, there's no way you could have held me back from breaching that door. Uh, If you get laced up, you get shot. That's too bad. That's just part and parcel of what you do. They could have commandeered an 18-wheeler. They have police cars. Commandeer an 18-wheeler, and you could literally run into the side of the building where the windows are, breach it, have an entry team behind that. If the hallways are wide enough like they are in some, and I don't know, but I know in some high schools, the hallways are wide enough. You can drive a car in there and breach the door with a vehicle or breach the wall. There are any number of things. Um, It's just, it's infuriating that people would stand out there. And how do you get that many officers not to override this individual and just say, you know, this is ridiculous. I'm going, I don't get it.
1: My last question here on legal face-off is, you know, obviously the, victims families are going through hell and will forever go through hell we've covered these stories unfortunately extensively over the course of eight years here on legal face i've talked to a lot of victims families what we haven't talked about so much is how the officers deal with it of course you know uh, at the end of the day you know this police chief peter arredondo he carries a lot of responsibility but talk to us a little bit about what he's dealing with what the officers are dealing with you know these are still human beings and you could certainly assign responsibility and, and learn from what they should have done differently. But obviously very difficult for them to live with these decisions for the rest of their lives. As a former police officer, can you talk to us a little bit about, about what, what they'll be dealing with?
0: I think they're going to have a real hard go of it. I would uh, if I was in that situation. I probably wouldn't have acted in the same manner as they did. I just would have superseded everybody and gone. And that's just me. And I know uh, my partners and I worked in SWAT for 10 years in Metro on LAPD. you uh, <clears throat> You're going. Uh, whether or not you're coming in behind me or not, inconsequential to me. I'm, I'm moving in. Uh, I think it, they're going to have a hard time, um, and there's going to be a lot of criticism leveled. Um, it's, it, it's. I do not envy uh, these individuals. I don't envy being in their shoes. And emotionally, I think it's going to be very difficult for them, you know, to deal with the aftermath and the fallout. And uh, you
1: think there's any criminal liability
0: here? I don't think there's criminal. I think there's 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 going to be culpability in the part of uh, uh, ineptitude, negligence. You know, that's pretty much how these people are going to probably be uh, pressed. That's that's what I would imagine if you look at the lawsuit.
1: That's Scott Reach from International dot com. The podcast is with Deadly Force. It's an excellent podcast. And the latest book is The Art of Modern Gunfighting. Scott, thank you so much for joining us on Legal Face Off.
0: Rich, thank you very much for having me. I look forward to being on in the future if you need me. You are listening to Christina Martini on
4: Legal Face Off. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will, and Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott Will and Emery, visit MWE.com. Welcome into the Legal Grab Bag Face-Off segment here on the
5: Legal Face-Off podcast. I'm Joe Brand. Let's get to our two guests for the Legal Grab Bag segment with Dina Dahl starting as our legal analyst for the Law and Crime Network, also co-founder of Dahl, Amir, and Ely Practice. And you can also find her on TikTok at Ask Dina, thank you so much for joining us today.
6: Thanks for having me.
5: We're also joined by Jeremy Evans, founder of California Sports Lawyer and host of the Believe in Sports Law Network with Jeremy Evans. Jeremy, thanks for being here as well.
7: Uh, thanks for having me. Appreciate it.
5: Absolutely. Rich, we're going to start off with the uh, most recent hearings of the Johnny Depp Amber Heard uh, course that we've been uh, following for quite some time now.
1: Yeah, the jury's out. Um, they are literally deliberating now. We thought we might hear something Friday that was a little optimistic. They took the long weekend and now they are deliberating. Uh, Dina, you know, in a typical case, you might apply the sort of cliche jury being out for a long time helps one side or the other. This case is a little more gray because they're are suing each other. So there's not really one clear winner or loser. What's your early impression of what's going on on really day one and a half, maybe of deliberations?
6: You know, we just actually got a jury question not that long ah, ago,
1: which was you know, interesting. Breaking news.
6: I think it was a little bit revealing on the timing, actually, because they asked whether or not the headline is a statement for defamatory purposes or if it's the whole the whole article. Now, we know there's six different statements at issue. Johnny Depp is alleging three of them fame him. Amber Heard is alleging three of them defame her. The headline is the very first statement in that verdict form. So I think they're at the very beginning here.
1: So it'll be a long process, probably. You know, we heard weeks of testimony. Uh, I know you said from listening to an interview you gave on Canadian TV over the weekend, or maybe on Friday, that uh, juries, you know, maybe counter to what we often think, even as veteran litigants, the juries actually do pay really, you know, close attention to the evidence in these cases, even though there's weeks to, you know, weeks, weeks and weeks of testimony and many uh, different witnesses that you think in this case they really are going to listen to the evidence and testimony, not maybe be so wowed by the celebrity status and all the extraneous noise. Why do you think that?
6: I think because we've seen time and time again, juries, you know, we often we can ask jurors questions after they deliver a verdict and they usually come to that same legal issue that we've all been grappling with. And here, while, of course, these are two major celebrities, they've been watching them for six weeks. So I think maybe that shine has kind of worn off a little bit to them. They probably can evaluate it at this point. And they're instructed really to not they're not supposed to come to their verdict with any sympathy you know, with any kind of prejudice or bias. And I think that jurors do take that oath seriously and have proved that they are very good at looking at the evidence. And I think that question was a very thoughtful question. They really want to get it right, it sounds like. They're really clarifying, you know, is it a statement? Is the article? It shows how careful they're being.
1: Chairman, you deal with a lot of high profile cases, a lot of high profile uh, plaintiffs against a lot of your clients. You know, in this case, I called it earlier in our show today, the most covered trial in American history. I think it is given the TikTok Twitter era we are now, right? The OJ Simpson trial was incredibly well covered, but there was not the internet coverage to the extent that we have now. There wasn't social media. So given that, and given the overwhelming derision that Amber Heard is facing on TikTok, especially, but all across social media, I wonder if that translates to inside that jury room. In other words, do you think that the society in general, at least as it's represented on social media, is going to correlate to how those seven people are looking at this case? Or do you really think that they are really sort of in a bubble and not having maybe the same thought processes as the rest of the world seemingly has in overwhelmingly favoring Johnny Depp?
7: That's such an important question. And I, I love what Dina had said and shared too. And, and I think I would make two points on that. I think the first is is that the jury will be uh, influenced by that only insofar as um, the people who are on social media are, the, are, are basically our peers as well. So when you get a jury, you get a jury or your peers, right? So if people in the public that are you know watching it on TV are affected by it and they have comments on it or thoughts on it, the jury probably has those same thoughts. But do they actually uh, use that in their analysis is, is probably unlikely. Um, they're going to have to follow the jury instructions, as, as Dina had said. But I think the other point that I would make is that, you know, ultimately, um, when, when folks are sort of looking at some of the evidence, I mean, you know, maybe you might be influenced by, uh, you know, public opinion. I mean, the reality of it is you can't ignore it. It's out there. Um, you know, you can't force jurors not to look at their phones or to pay attention to the news. Uh, but I, I would say that, um, you know, if if the jury is, you know, of public opinion is uh, is weighed pretty heavily in favor of Depp, um, there might be something to that. And I would say from, from watching from the sidelines, um, you know, there's been a lot of evidence presented. I think ultimately, it's just a sad situation overall that their marriage had to be, you know, uh, published, you know, here in public. But um, but I guess to the question, I don't think it's going to have much of much of an effect other than uh, it would have an effect on you you know, listening to it and how you might form an opinion about it. But I think the jury instructions and, and the way that the judge has handled this trial, it, it'll come down to to the evidence uh, at play.
1: Dina, before we move on, just last question on this on this topic. Um, Johnny Depp, there's video of him over the weekend playing uh, guitar with Jeff Beck in London. I mean, many have criticized uh, Johnny Depp's demeanor during the whole trial as, you know, pretty aloof and snickering a lot, uh, doodling, not making eye contact with Amber Heard, etc. You know, the jury is probably not picking up on this video. Maybe they are, probably not, though, if they're following instructions. What do you make of sort of how Johnny Depp is now acting as the trial uh, is in the jury stage?
6: His supporters are definitely kind of rejoicing in this. They see it as his car you know, it's moment to process everything. He loves his music. But as a lawyer, I would have advised him against doing that because the, the point is, is that the jury is still stuck. Working on his case. They want to right. go home. They want to do their hobbies. They want to see their family. And if he is essentially asking this jury to show up and put in these really long hours, I think that was in poor taste having him uh, play these concerts until at least just wait for the verdict to come in.
5: The world is still pretty shook after the mass shooting in Evaldi, Texas. And Rich, uh, President Joe Biden, with some pretty strong vows after visiting the area
1: predictably right i mean the president uh you know over the weekend on sunday him and the first lady were in texas uh and he came out and said you know we will go forward with gun control but the question i think for the panel is how realistic is that right we've seen time and time again that in the wake of these shootings uh there is a period where everyone is mobilized to enact more strict uh gun legislation and that you know quickly uh goes away and you know every single time especially when there's shootings involving elementary students it seems to be this is the final straw and this is finally the uh end of this and will force legislators to enact more strict gun regulation we've all seen the studies of other countries many of whom who have you know way longer and um you know, longer traditions of gun ownership, but don't have this kind of issue. Uh, And we've seen how they deal with it legislatively. So what do we think, Jeremy, do you think there is finally the impetus to get that 60 person majority in the Senate to pass uh, gun control? Or do you think fairly soon, this will will evaporate and we'll be on to the next shooting, unfortunately?
7: Well, I think, unfortunately, uh, from the standpoint of forgetting sort of our history and forgetting our, you know, uh, some of these things that happen across the country and really across the globe with regard to shootings, it's so unfortunate, especially in this circumstance, with you know, with, with the children, I think that um, I, I don't think Congress is going to pass some national legislation unless somehow in the midterms. Uh, a supermajority was brought in or, or I just don't think that we're gonna see that now what I do think is going to happen is we're going to have states uh, particularly California and maybe some of the more um, blue and I would say even more maybe some of the red states as well or purple states uh, you know might see more legislation uh, towards um, you know regulating gun laws and background checks and you um, you know, that sort of thing. But I think any time, you know, what we've seen time and time again with the Supreme Court, though, too, is that any time a state comes forward with some sort of uh, regulation, it's eventually challenged in court and eventually overturned as unconstitutional because of the Second Amendment. So um, I think states will probably have a bigger role in this than the federal government.
1: Dina, in some ways, that's an interesting point. I mean, in some ways, though, Dina, I was thinking about this over the weekend and in some ways. This shooting actually emboldens opponents of gun control because and I've heard this from a couple of uh, Second Amendment advocates already. That the old idea that um, you know the Second Amendment uh, lobby would say that the only way to stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. Well, in this case, as we just talked about with another expert, we had at least eleven or twelve good guys with guns just steps away from the bad guy with a gun, and that didn't solve the problem. So, in some ways. This only emboldens that argument that it doesn't matter if, um, you know, uh, someone who's hellbent on shooting is going to do their do their do their will.
6: Oh, absolutely. And I think, uh, you know, for me, the argument, you know, that the Second Amendment gives somebody a right to a gun is kind of where the NRA and proponents kind of come from that place. Mm -hmm. And it seems hard to attack it. But we know that that was not the case until 2008 in the, in the, con, um, Supreme Court case Heller that Justice Scalia wrote. And that was the first time the Supreme Court interpreted the Second Amendment as having an individual right to bear arms. And I think that needs to become part of the larger conversation to realize that this isn't something that's been part of our history for, you know, since the inception. And not only that, but it's that Supreme Court case, which, you know, that was a 5-4 decision. You know, now we have more conservative justices. It's going, it, you know, if this issue comes up, it's probably going to be even stronger. And a lot of those state legislations that probably will get passed are going to be fought now at the Supreme Court and may very well get overturned because of this stricter review on this Second Amendment and what kind of regulations you can do on now a constitutional right for you, not just bearing arms in the context of a militia, but you to bear arms. And I think, unfortunately, even if we pass a lot of regulations, a lot of those are going to be fought. And with this Supreme Court, they may very well get overturned.
5: Which Deshaun Watson, quarterback of the Cleveland Browns, wouldn't go on an HBO interview, but one of his lawyers did, and they had to address And one of the most jarring aspects of the entire case, that
1: 22 women have come forward with accusations. Yeah, the question posed uh, on the latest edition of HBO Real Sports to one of Deshaun Watson's attorneys was, how are we supposed to believe one individual, this quarterback, who, by the way, signed the richest deal in NFL history uh, a few weeks ago, how are we supposed to believe that person against 22 accusers? Well, the answer that came out of Deshaun Watson's camp and his attorney was that yes, these are 22 women, but there's only one lawyer. And in fact, the one lawyer uh, took the case after two or three other lawyers turned these uh, alleged victims down, and that this new lawyer, who is currently representing the 22, only took the case, of course, to promote his social media and to solicit these cases. I thought that was an interesting take. Um, you know, it kind of brings to mind the bigger picture question, and it's Dina, the same question I think we're wrestling with in the Amber Heard situation is, you know, these things seem to go up and down. You know, initially at the beginning of the Me Too movement, there was a absolute belief from day one in the allegations of the victims of sexual, emotional, physical abuse. It seems to have turned a little bit where uh, you don't automatically believe the accusers. Certainly in the Amber Heard situation, it seems unfortunate, in my opinion, that there's such universal derision for someone who is getting up in front of the public and telling the world that I was physically, emotionally, sexually abused. Similarly, in the Deshaun Watson case, we've got 22 women who tell you know fairly similar stories of abuse in you know massage rooms by Deshaun Watson. Yet, um, you know his attorney, understandably, she's doing her job, but is basically blaming the blaming the accuser, blaming the victims. What do you think of that strategy?
6: I, it seemed like a novel strategy, on a lawyer who I am a lawyer on social media a lot, and that's funny. I've never heard of that being accused. I mean, Gloria Allwright has been doing this forever, um, and nobody has accused her of that. But I think that if that were to be true, I mean, first of all, twenty-two victims is. Huge. I mean, that's even more than really we saw with Harvey Weinstein or Bill Cosby and certainly more than with Johnny Depp. So that's quite a lot. And it's something that could very easily be revealed, because if he were indeed trying to solicit people, then theoretically he would have had to solicit 100 people in order to get 22 people. I mean, did he solicit the exact right people? So that would be one thing. And then, two, if they really were kind of all fake, that would so easily come out in some sort of preliminary hearing. It would be very hard to get 22 people to tell their stories correctly under oath if they were not telling the truth so, so to me that was just like a, a dart you put in the to to see doubt but didn't really have any validity
1: and you always you know, wonder and, and and jeremy i want to bring you on this you always wonder the age-old defense of well these people are looking for their 50 minutes of fame i mean what victim of you know alleged victim is going to be seeking fame and and like they're massage therapists. Do they really think that they're, I mean, to believe Deshaun Watson, you have to believe that they would, they're concocting this plan to further develop their careers as massage therapists or what, maybe they'll, you know, they'll get some kind of endorsement. It's in my opinion, wacky, but Jeremy, this is in your wheelhouse. Of course, uh, the NFL has responded and the owner of the Browns has responded that they vetted this quarterback Deshaun Sean Watson more than any other decision in their history. Um, but as this story revealed, they didn't speak to these victims you would think at least that if part of your allegation is that you were vetting the, you know, vetting it more than you have in any decision you've ever made as a professional football club, I don't know. You might speak to the actual alleged victims to determine how credible they are before showering the richest contract in NFL history on this quarterback.
7: Right. Look, it's such an important question. And I think it goes to, um, you know, really looking at the NFL and how they handle, uh, you know, situations in general, uh, to me, I was I was surprised that uh, that Deshaun had gotten the contract based on the prior history of the NFL, particularly what they learned from Ray Rice and what they learned from uh, Deflategate and all the different, um, you know, uh, I guess, issues and disputes that they've had. And the reason why I bring up those two particular uh, references is Ray Rice basically taught us that. You know, if you're going to discipline, you know somebody, you know, uh, you need to do it the right the first time, essentially, and you need to take care of it, or otherwise it comes back to haunt you. And then with Deflate Gate, I think people questioned uh, why so many resources were put into that. Uh, you know, eventually, uh, from the standpoint of what the evidence showed, or or what have you. I will say this from the NFL standpoint, from the Brown standpoint, um, it is disappointing they didn't interview the victims or the alleged victims, but I would say that, uh, from the NFL usually does a pretty good job of, um, of, of sort of doing investigations. And to me, I don't think that the Browns, uh, or the NFL would put forward with such a large contract and take that risk without having done some research on this. That being said, it's, it's a risky proposition. Um, and, and, you know, say what you will, uh, about the ongoing case, uh, it, you know, to me, it was a a highly risky proposition knowing that these cases were still out there. Uh, It's it's all,
1: it's just a rough, it's all Jeremy. And and it's also just a rough look, right. From a PR perspective, from a league that's coming off so many scandals involving this particular allegation, these particular allegations and trying to be more inclusive and diverse and involving women that all goes out the window. It's apparently is the message when you have a great quarterback physically uh, skill level who you could throw money at. All that stuff goes out the window seemingly when you've got you know the ability to advance your play on the field. It's a rough look for the NFL, I think, for sure. Joe?
5: Yeah, Rich, let's move on to the 2008 murder trial that's been circulating the Portland headlines for quite some time now involving a romance novelist.
1: Yeah, Nancy Brophy was just convicted uh, last week of killing her husband her husband was a prominent chef and she was found guilty of second-degree murder by a jury um oddly enough one of the uh, essays she wrote was entitled how to murder your husband go figure that someone who wrote a novel called how to murder your husband was convicted of i don't know murdering your husband um you know what's interesting here is that uh the jury didn't know that directly there was some reference to i think it uh but the judge did not let that in because the essay was written in 2011 and the judge out in uh, Oregon said that the uh minimal probative value of the article written that long ago was outweighed by the danger of unfair prejudice and confusion of the issues i don't know i mean i get the idea that it was written so long before the murder but listen to what someone says they're going to do that's a pretty good predictor of what they might do in the future right
7: yeah um you know i think that's such an interesting question because um and, and a good one i think probably that the the judge in, in the case essentially thought that that evidence would be far too prejudicial you know if, if you were to introduce you know this letter this book you know this article basically saying how to it'd be like i guess to put it in context it'd be like if oj simpson wrote his book about how to murder your wife you to before to right right exactly. i mean it's just, I think it'd be extremely presidential. It, it is interesting. Um, and again, the jury from a knowledge standpoint probably knows this, but again, they're going to be instructed, <laughs> you know, or they were instructed to, uh, you know, to not consider that. And it looks like it was a guilty verdict anyway.
1: Yeah. Dina, good decision by the judge.
6: Yes, Definitely especially because she's a fiction writer. I mean, if she had just written in her journal or she had sent that letter to somebody, I think that that may have come in as more probative, but the fact is her whole job is to spin tales. And she wrote about a lot of things. And so, I definitely think that, you know, reading something like that, how to kill your husband would have been so extremely prejudicial. And the fact that she wrote it years before and the fact that that is her job is to write fiction. I think the judge definitely made the right call, but she was convicted anyway. So, you know, that's interesting. It showed that there was quite enough evidence otherwise.
5: Yeah. Yeah. From spinning tales to spinning records, it's been a while since we brought up Kanye West on this show, Rich, but he has now lost his fourth divorce divorce lawyer.
1: What a shock, Dina, that um, Kanye is difficult to work with. He's a difficult client. This latest attorney uh, filed a motion last week to be relieved of counsel. Um, Samantha Spector said that there has been an irreconcilable breakdown in the attorney-client relationship. As Joe mentioned, we've covered extensively the long legal history of Kanye West. Of course, now he's getting divorced from Kim Kardashian. Uh, and, you know, also interestingly, and this lines up with a story we covered last week uh, or last episode, you can look to some of his lyrics. He's actually talking about some of these custody issues in his lyrics. And this seems to be a trend, by the way, talking about, you know, self-incriminating and maybe the line between fiction and nonfiction blurring in our other story. He is writing lyrics that say, "Wait, when you see the kids, I'll see y'all tomorrow." Wait, when the sunset, he says that the kids are being uh, bar uh, bar barcode scanned when they're being dropped off. So, uh, I don't envy any attorney. Of course, it's great billable hours, and we'll talk about the billable rate here in a moment. But great money to be made off this case, but uh, a very challenging client. You would you would imagine, right, Dina?
6: Yes, very challenging. I mean, just the public, what we know from the public perception is very challenging. But it is true that divorces by nature are very contentious. And in Hollywood, in L.A., I'm sure that divorce lawyers have dealt with very contentious uh, celebrities who don't maybe want to be treated like the average person. So for him to go through that many attorneys, I, I think is pretty shocking. My guess is that he doesn't want to cooperate and continue the settlement. I mean, that's what we've gotten with, you know, his, like you said, his lyrics, we've kind of gotten that he doesn't want to have this divorce. My guess is they're they're saying to him, okay, this is the next step. We have to respond or we have to file. And he's just refusing to do so. I mean, that is just my guess, but that would be probably the reason why a lawyer would have to withdraw is if they literally cannot do their job because he's not cooperating.
2: And
1: really quickly, Jeremy, I know that, you know, this is also in your wheelhouse, of course, as it is Dina's, but you know, it's not easy for a celebrity that, with the stature of Kanye West, who of course is, you know, one of the most recognizable and celebrated and accomplished uh, musicians of the last, let's say, 25 years not easy for him to take direction he's used to being the one who gives direction who tells everyone what to do and in this case it's likely that these four attorneys told him news that he doesn't want to hear and we know connie west is let's call him a little bit volatile it's probably difficult for him to take direction from his attorney right that's what at least we could read into the tea leaves here
7: yeah you know and i i i, I love what dina said and and i think you know, ultimately this is where the client interview becomes so important, right? So like I go through a checklist before I bring on a client and I sort of look at what's the personality, what's the past, what's the history, uh, what's the conversation like, you know, is it a good conversation? And then you can kind of really get into somebody's personality. And I think as an attorney, one of the best skills you can have is, is picking up on people's personalities and reading people and seeing what they're like. And then the second best thing is, to make sure your retainer agreement essentially lines out some sort of limited scope or or ways to uh, uh get out of the agreement. But as Dina mentioned, you know, it's um that that may become difficult, uh, especially in your middle of a uh, of a case or middle of a trial. But um it, again, I just I just highlight the importance of the client interview. I mean, this is that this is, you know, I think lawyering one oh one. Joe, only
1: to be the, a fly Joe, only to be a fly on the wall on the Kanye
5: West client interview, right? <laughs> I don't know which one I would rather be, the, the Johnny Depp, Amber Heard. I guess all that is, is going out publicly, though, so you could follow it along if you wanted to. But yeah, I would love to see what Kanye West is like behind closed doors, but probably only once. I don't know if I would want to see it more than once. Uh, let's get to those uh, fair hourly billing rates, as you were mentioning earlier. Our show director, Joey Christopoulos, was saying how he wanted to get a raise to $2,500 an hour uh, only because he saw it fair enough, just like a uh, big law partner, Rich.
1: Almost what we're paying uh, you guys for helping us out on a legal face-off. But uh, Hogan Lavelles is the uh, law firm. And, I mean, we've tried to get this attorney, Neil Cuddyell, on the show many times. He's way too uh, busy actually billing $2,500 an hour to come on. But, listen, he's one of the most accomplished attorneys uh, in the country. He's a former U.S. acting solicitor general, which means he argued cases on behalf of the federal government at the Supreme Court. That being said, um, the issue here is whether his 20... 20- to be specific, twenty four sixty five an hour uh, is a fair rate in this Johnson and Johnson bankruptcy case. The last record I think uh, Dina was uh, somewhere under two thousand. Uh, I think the previous record was maybe eighteen seventy five at Scan and Arps, but two thousand dollars an hour. Again, uh, there's an incre- there's some incredibly talented lawyers in the country, and this gentleman, of course, is at the top of that. But lots of money being. Uh, being built here by by attorneys.
6: Well, absolutely. And I started my career at a big private law firm. And yeah, I mean, this was like 20 years ago. And the partners were one of the partners was billing $1,000 an hour. So to me, it seems like, okay, 20 years later, a little bit of inflation, 2500 I, I almost, it doesn't even give me a sticker <laughs> shock. I mean, the fact is, is that that lawyer is not doing most of the legal work when he's involved in a case or a corporate transaction. They're not doing, you know, they're passing that down to the cheaper lawyers, but they're there to make those really big decisions. And they're usually may, making the decisions that make or break the cut company decisions where millions of dollars are at risk. And at that point, a client is definitely willing to spend the $2,500 an hour to get their insight to avoid a really big payouts. It's, it's in those contexts that lawyers can make that much an billable rate.
1: Jeremy, we know you're getting close to that. You're almost at the $2,500 hourly rate. But uh, it wouldn't surprise you that based on the most recent study looking at hourly rates, The highest the states with the highest average rates are your D.C.'s, your New York's your California, where you are. Any guess on what the lowest uh, average rate is by by state? Which state has the lowest average billable rates? Anyone want to guess? Mississippi. Mississippi is in the lowest 10, but it's not the lowest one. Uh, Dina, you got a guess on that?
6: That's a really good question. How about Florida? Because there's probably a lot of lawyers there, (laughs) maybe bringing the Uh, rate down
1: it's not florida joe any guesses on the lowest rate what the, 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 the worst state to choose if you're an aspiring young lawyer and you want to make your uh bones on a hourly rate what about what about you joe how
5: about montana
1: no nah, you're close montana the average rate was 196 but west virginia is at the bottom uh of the 50th at 166 although it was up in the last year by 4.8 percent, but um yeah, my, my clients who are listening to this podcast, I know there's many, just stay tuned because in the wake of this, I'm going to be, of course, raising my rates to closer to this new standard of 2,500. So be aware.
5: Well, this next and our last story kind of reminds me of a uh, situation where somebody purchased an old frame from a garage sale and then they found one of the original copies of the Declaration of Independence uh, below it. But uh, the dress that Judy Garland wore in The Wizard of Oz from a shoebox in a school, went on auction, and then someone who felt that they were the right owner of the dress got involved.
1: I mean, yeah, it's like, it's almost a perfect trust of the state's law school exam, but it actually really happened in real life. You know, I was trying to think as I was preparing for the story, like it's got to be a top 10 movie prop of all time. What's more iconic than the Dorothy dress? I mean, the red slippers are of course iconic too. They're in the New Academy Museum there in, in L.A. Yeah, but this Maybe is Indiana really Jones hat or something. Indiana Jones, for sure. Um, but yeah, this is a huge piece of memorabilia. And the dispute here is whether it's owned by 81-year-old Barbara Ann Hartke, who has filed a lawsuit to stop the auction. Uh, Catholic University is a private university. Um, and they found themselves, as you mentioned, in possession of one of the two remaining costumes worn by Judy Garland in the film. Uh, one of them was in the school, not where you would expect to find this iconic dress, of course. Uh, they got it appraised, and the number came back between 800,000 and 1.2 million. Well, guess what? Uh, this uh, father, Gilbert Hartke, who was the late uncle of the plaintiff, he ran the school's drama department at Catholic University. And he said that this was a gift to the school and not a personal gift. And more to the point, he said that as a Dominican school, they cannot accept uh, gifts. Uh, as part of his, uh, as a Dominican, he has to take a poverty vow, and he cannot accept gifts. So that is the argument that the university is putting forth, and saying that this is our property, not your personal property. Uh, the eighty-one-year-old niece finds or is taking a different perspective this is not the first time uh, jeremy and dina we've covered stories like this where uh people are fighting over uh estates and important pieces of, uh, of of memorabilia what are your thoughts uh, jeremy first on, on this one who who should get the dress
7: you know i think it's interesting the university is using um you know, sort of um, this idea of being a Dominican and, and what that means for, you know, like from a, like a religious standpoint, you know, the, you know, religion is something that these are rules and edicts that are passed down by the church and by the leaders of the church, right? And then ultimately by, um, by God. But I think it's interesting that the university would use this from a standpoint of, because at the end of the day, it's it's a personal choice whether the father decided to follow that edict or not. So, um, I don't know if it's that strong of an argument. Uh, it's an interesting one. And as Dina said earlier, maybe it's a novel one, but, uh, I'm going to curious how this is going to, how this is going to play out.
1: Dina, we all know the old legal uh, adage that possession is, uh, nine tenths or whatever of the law, the university is in possession of it. Um, but her attorneys have said that, uh, there's no, I mean, at the end of the day, A lot of this comes down to contract law, right? Is there an agreement in writing? And if not, is there some kind of oral agreement of who owns the dress? The plaintiff's argument is that there is no such agreement. Therefore, it belongs to, to the estate.
6: Well, and that's that's a little bit of what's the problem here is. It was so long ago. I don't know if the person who facilitated giving it to this uh, priest is still alive because that would be really important if it was this verbal agreement so if that's not the case they're going to have to piece it together with more like circumstantial evidence there i guess was a newspaper around the time that ind- made it implied that the school was the person receiving the gift and that nobody came out and said that wasn't the case or anything like that. That helps the school. And the fact that when he passed away, nobody at that point tried to facilitate giving it to his heirs, which you would do if you thought it was a gift. Or maybe he would have done, you know, in some sort of will or paper or verbal request to somebody. So, you know, lacking probably enough people who actually remember what happened at the time, those kind of circumstances, I would say. Say, gives the school a little bit of an edge here
1: uh, We would like to end each show joe uh, with an around the horn segment let's talk about wizard of oz one of the most iconic films of all time when i was a kid i was scared I, the, the flying monkeys scared the crap out of me um, let's go around the horn and tell us each of you what your favorite character is in the wizard of oz uh joe let's start with you because i know you're a huge oz fan
5: well, you know what's funny is my grandmother was And my wife is, too um, And actually, my dad used to say The first time he ever got scared about watching Something on TV is when the lion busted Through the window uh, right. So when you brought that up about the flying monkeys That's what it reminded me of uh,
1: I'll go with the scarecrow, favorite character Alright, Dina, favorite character From Wizard of Oz
6: it Has to be Dorothy, for sure There
1: you, there yes. you go Maybe maybe you could buy the dress at auction And uh <laughs> like uh like kim kardashian (laughs) like kim kardashian did with the uh maryland dress maybe you could see if you could you know fit into the dorothy dress jeremy uh favorite wizard of oz character
7: i'm gonna agree with dina and go with dorothy and i'm gonna go with dorothy because she had the most courage amongst the group um i felt like the other ones were somewhat you know one guy didn't have enough oil another guy didn't have enough courage you know so uh i i think uh I think probably Dorothy is my, my favorite and most memorable.
1: See, I'm a big fan of uh, horror movies and I always side with the villains and I'm a big fan of the Wicked Witch of the West. I thought she got a raw deal and uh, very misunderstood. You know, you try going around with green skin and see if that doesn't affect you know, your persona and your demeanor. So long live the witch. <laughs>
5: Well, more good witches here than bad witches, even though Rich uh, sides with the Wicked Witch of the East. Uh, That's going to do it for the Legal Grab Bag segment here on the Legal Face-Off podcast. Big thanks to Dina and Jeremy. Again, feel free to uh, follow, listen, and like Jeremy Evans' podcast, the host in uh, Believe in Sports Law with Jeremy Evans, and also follow Dina Dahl on TikTok at Ask Dina Dahl. For Rich Lenkoff and for our producers of Joey Christopoulos, Ben Anderson and Yvonne Barbosa, I'm Joe Brand. We'll talk to you next time here on the Legal Face-Off podcast. It's Christina Martini and Rich Lenkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face-Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget.